LinkedIn presents. Last Friday, after dropping my kids at school, I drove an hour north on the winding Sawmill Parkway, with morning light flashing between the trees, to the charming town of Dobbs Ferry, New York, nestled on the bank of the Hudson River. My destination was the Climbing Wolf Coffee Shop, where I met Chris and Ponio, two co-founders of the Next Big Idea Club. In the next two hours, we got more done together than we have accomplished in weeks of Zoom calls, ended it with hugs and high fives, and a refreshed sense of mission and purpose. By the time I arrived home, I'd spent as much time driving as meeting with the team, but it was well worth it. Like so many other companies, we moved to fully remote work during the pandemic and found that we liked it. Productivity, at least on paper, soared. Fewer interruptions, no commutes, more time with family. It felt like a win-win-win. And yet, in recent weeks, my vague sense of missing the office has turned into a compulsion to brave highways and coffee of unknown quality. Apparently, I'm not alone. According to Gallup, around 70 million Americans have jobs they could do entirely from home. But here's the surprising thing, they don't want to. 60% of those remote capable workers say their ideal work arrangement is a hybrid one. Why is that? I think it's because people everywhere are craving the same thing I was when I drove up to Dobbs Ferry last week, good old fashioned analog human interaction. For years, we've been told the future is going to be digital and that eventually computers will improve every single aspect of our lives. And then, thanks to the pandemic, that digital future was suddenly forced upon us. We traded offices for Zoom rooms, gyms for Pelotons, schools for YouTube videos, restaurants for takeout apps. And it fucking sucked. That's journalist David Sachs reading from his new book, The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. The digital future we worked to build our entire life finally arrived. And instead of finding ourselves thrust into the liberating utopian place it had promised, we awoke in a luxurious dystopian prison. The pandemic, David says, was an object lesson in the limitations of digital technology. Yes, it helped us stay in touch with friends, do our jobs and go to school, but it left many of us longing for face-to-face -face interactions and real-world experiences. And this caused David to start noodling on a rather provocative question. What if the future isn't digital at all? What if it's analog? The word analog conjures up pistachioed Brooklynites, fixed gear bikes, and expensive audio equipment, but that's not how David defines it. For him, analog is a catch-all term for framing the difference between the mediated world that we experience through computers and the real one we see, hear, feel, touch, taste, and smell when we look beyond our screens. In The Future is Analog, David dares to imagine what the world would look like if we stop fantasizing about technological possibilities and start focusing on what we actually need. Because it turns out that what a lot of us need is decidedly lo-fi. A walk in the park, dinner and wine with friends, a few hours in a coffee shop, trying to figure out how to build a business with people you care about. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. 
TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. David Sachs, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. It's my pleasure to be here. All right, David. So we test drove the digital future during the pandemic, and it came up wanting. Is that the thesis of, of your new book, The Future is Analog? That's the starting point. We wash out the other end of this once-in-a-lifetime humanity event, where we all were immersed in the promised digital future that we had been building, doing everything in our lives online through screens, learning, eating, shopping, whatever you wanted to do. And for the most part, for most people, it was a negative experience that we very quickly wanted to get away from and back to the analog world, the spaces, places, relationships that had kind of grounded us and we couldn't access because of you know the pandemic. And so the book is really looking at what we learned, what we learned about the limits of digital in that, but also really more importantly than the limits of digital, the, the sort of core values and benefits and sort of essential elements of non-digital analog life and settings and interactions that maybe we had taken for granted previously as we were rushing to build this digital future. I'll tell you, your book comes at, a, at an interesting time for me personally, because I, I have a history, David, of being a bit of a tech junkie I have historically bought into some degree to this promise of kind of technology empowering us to express ourselves, be more creative, be more autonomous, be more connected. So there's a side of me that just has felt like, just, just bring it. I want my augmented reality glasses, my Neuralace. I want to fly through the, a lag-free version of the metaverse. But there's another side of me that's been increasingly tuned into what we've lost and kind of convinced by your argument that we need to band together right now and make some really deliberate choices to prioritize face-to-face -face relationships, time in nature, put away our phones. So I'm, I find myself really kind of rendered asunder between these two impulses. And I experienced that as well, right? I'm, I use digital technology all the time. In fact, we're using digital technology now to record this very conversation. And it's wonderful and helped me out in a lot of ways, but I... I'm increasingly conscious of one, its limitations, and two, its, its side effects and drawbacks, where it's actually making my life worse, where it's making me less productive. And so I'm, I try to increasingly go forward and structure my life personally, professionally, whatever, so that it has that balance. And I'm using it for its best possible uses, but I'm not getting caught up in this belief that it's a solution to something greater or, or some sort of end societal goal um, as the transhumanists or other believe. Why don't we get into it more specifically on the, t on the topic of work and the future of work? You have this wonderful riff on the beauty of an architecture firm and the power of embodied cognition. Yeah, uh, this came from a conversation I had with a gentleman named uh, Andres Hofbrauer, who um, works and lives in New York. He's a researcher into organizational psychology, and and his research is really focused on architecture firms and the way that architects work together in a space, right, in a studio. And uh, we were talking about what he'd observed during the course of the pandemic, and he said that you know architects 
uh, among the organizations he studied were the ones who were really expressed to him openly the the difficulty they were having when they were working remotely. They were actually sneaking into the office to work there uh, during you know periods of lockdown uh, huh. because they yeah. found that they couldn't get uh, the ideas they wanted done in the right way. Especially, he said, especially new ideas and new projects. And what he narrowed it down to was this idea of embodied cognition, which is, to put it simply, the understanding you get about ideas by moving through and sharing physical space with others you're working with over the period of a long time, right? So he said, imagine, you know, you're an architect at a firm in New York and you're working on, I don't know, a skyscraper. You know, it's a big project, involves all sorts of people, involves all sorts of jobs, architects, interior designers, you know, the sales team, the legal team, the engineers, the guys who deal with the unions, the guys who are paying off the union and the mafia that's controlling it or whatever, right? Like all, you know, finance, accounting, blah, 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 blah. Now, everybody can do their individual jobs through software. It's almost all done. It's 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 highly possible remotely and they all switch to sort of doing it. But he said, the thing is when you're in an architecture studio, day-to-day working there, and this big complex project, which has thousands and thousands of pieces and components. And I mean, think about mm. it. It's a, you know, skyscraper yeah. is like a massive Lego project. Um, everybody can do their individual components. But he said, when you're walking through an office, you know, you walk by Caleb's desk and you walk by Rufus' desk and you walk by Sarit's desk and you walk by Jenny's desk. And each day you're going to pick something out of the corner of your eye. Maybe, you know, someone has an interior tile samples arrayed out. Maybe someone else has drawings or models or renderings. You know, when you go to the elevator to go get lunch, you're going to bump into someone and and you're going to overhear conversation. You're going to talk about something. So that when you're working on your part of the plan or there's a meeting to bring things together, you already have this implicit understanding of the bigger idea because you've passively absorbed it through the physical space that you're in. It made me want to spend some time in an, an architecture firm after listening to reading that passage. I think you look great in a black turtleneck and you know some cool glasses. So, but I do think that there's a version of the old office that nobody wants to go back to. Right, the oceans of cubicles, punch in, punch out, and there are also different types of workers in different stages of their of their lives who have different needs. Right, they're young working mothers who have really benefited from now having the option to work remotely. So there's clearly a lot of complexity to the question of, of the future of work. And it seems like the, where we're moving towards is a place with more of a hybrid experience. Everybody wants binary answers. They want to know what the perfect mix is, how to do it now. We, we want to know because we have to, as a company, figure out how many people we're hiring and where they're going to be and where the offices are. And we have all this office space and how much do we lease and how much do we not? Like there's big... There's big money on the line. There's big infrastructure on the line. There's huge organizational consequences to it. And what's happened is that that old balance has been upended and there were many things that were negative about it, but there were a lot of things that were positive about it. And I think this is, this is again, this difficult wrestling match with the future that we're now engaged in, right? The old office was could be, you know, forget about the fancy, nice, cool places. Like the average office is like, big and way too cold, air conditioned, way too cold for women and too hot for men. And, you know, the the, the cubicles, whatever desk arrangement is, is never the perfect one. Um, and there's all sorts of physical hierarchies and sexism and racism, things that happened in a physical space that were negative. And, you know, the commute times and, and getting people there mm, was a disaster no. and all this sort of stuff. And so when we got rid of people like, woo, sweatpants. Yeah. Woo. All right. Here we go. Wake yeah, up. Yeah. Oh, 8.55, <laughs> get into the office. 
And then after a while, it's like, oh man, I miss like a meeting, you know, like I miss going out for lunch in the middle of the workday with my coworkers to debrief and discuss and get to know them personally. I missed going somewhere and actually having a meeting with a client and getting to know them face to face. And so you're right that the experiment now is it's not figuring out this ideal balance that kind of will happen naturally. It's identifying the essential elements of work that are analog, that work best in person and building the structures or allowing the space around those so that we can elevate them and make them happen and make them work. And then the other stuff that isn't the process stuff, the stuff that we can do individualized in our own time in our own homes or wherever we choose to work, that's the part that can be sort of more flexible. One of my favorite ideas that's emerged in the last year for me is, is this um, argumentative theory of reason, uh, which um, Annie Murphy-Paul talked about on the show. We're talking about her book, The Extended Mind. This is the case that we evolved to think in groups. And so when we think in isolation, we suffer from confirmation bias, but we're extremely good at poking holes at other people's opinions. So when we're in a room with a bunch of other people, some of whom think differently from the way we think, we're actually very good at reasoning, <laughs> right? So, that, so it's kind of a beautiful idea, right? That we effectively evolve to be not singular brains operating in isolation, but to be collective brains, because this is how we always have thought throughout human history is in, in, in groups talking things through. We're social creatures, yeah, right? This is of course. this is this is it. Like we're not the biggest animals, we're not the fastest animals, we're not the strongest animals. We are the social animal, the most social animal. That is the entirety of what human dominance over this planet, for better or worse, is about coming together you know, having some sort of consensus, talking, sharing ideas, using our bodies together as one one thing. And the idea that we can then like, okay, well, we could do that with, you know, the information. So let's just separate those bodies. And that's cool. It's, it's going to work out fine. Um, I think that was the great, like I get asked, like, what was your biggest surprise in researching this? And I'm like, the mm. biggest surprise is that everyone just thought the shit would work. The analog world is our world and our bodies are analog and our minds are analog and our emotions, our hearts, our souls are analog um, fundamentally. And we've evolved over the course of hundreds of thousands of years to respond to the world that way. And we should suddenly be shocked that this digital substitute that we've created isn't up to snuff or doesn't go to the full level of what we need. Uh, and and it, was just, it, it was surprising to me we were so surprised by that. One last topic on the work subject. If you think about the future of work, I love this section you had in the book on the craft movement. And I actually want to read you a passage from your book. You write, perhaps we should think about our work in terms of craft, not in the sense that we're all artisans whittling away at a piece of wood, but in the sense that every one of us brings a unique set of skills, experiences, and talents to the work we do. Work is not just a series of tasks we tick off, it's a central part of our human experience and something that most of us take tremendous pride in doing well. Can you tell us more about the craft movement? This idea came from an interview I had um, by this academic, Joachim Krozen, who I'm totally mispronouncing it because he's Dutch. Uh, he teaches at Cambridge. And he really frames this question of work in the way that we have you know, the craft movement. Now, there's the, the classical craft movement of the sort of European guilds 
uh, you know, where everybody did their thing. You were a shoe cobbler, you were a goldsmith or whatever. And you really, you know, were sort of this artisan. And he talks about the modernization of this movement, especially around uh, the area that he specialized in, smartly and luckily, beer. We think of, you know, the industrialization of beer, the emergence of Coors and Budweiser and Heineken and, you know, Sapporo. Um, and it was like, this was it. You know, they had figured the most efficient way to make the cleanest beer that could be sold to the the most people. And this was sort of really dominated the market. And then what happened over the past 40, 50 years is that you had the emergence of craft beer, right? And craft beer was saying, mm-hmm. hey, there's room for us to make and a desire to purchase and drink all sorts of other beers that don't fit in within this narrow spectrum of kind of mass-produced tasteless pilsners. And so you had the emergence of the craft movement in Europe and then Quebec and Colorado, which sort of these like the, the 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 start of it, whereas now is like any town, any population that's over like seven people legally has to have a craft brewery in it at this point, right? Uh, <laughs> it's like, do you have a man with a beard? Craft brew for you, my friend. Yeah. It's like, you must legally, you must start a craft brewery in this town, Beardo, because um, it's just what's required. And it's amazing. I mean, you can yeah. go now to any town in not just North America, but you know, pretty much anywhere in the in the developed world, increasingly in the developing world, and there will be a craft brewery or craft cidery or some sort of thing where someone is making interesting beer in a way that uses some of the efficiencies and technology and business practices of a large industrial brewery, but with that individualized taste and vision and feel around the work. And what Jochen was um, is postulating is like look to that for the future of work. What, what's going to yeah. happen is that there are tasks that are going to be automated. And what, what we're going to have to do is figure out what are the things that we want to automate? What are the things that the computers are going to do best? Let's do that. You know, Oh, accounting is going to be automated in this way. Great. And then what are the things that humans in their analog way, in their very human way, in their very emotional way are going to be, apply, be able to apply their skills and craft to, regardless of whatever job it is? to use the advantages of their humanity to elevate, right? Taste, flavor, Mm. original ideas, empathy, getting back to that question of what is that core thing that we can bring to it and treat their jobs and the parts that matter like a craft, right? Something that you're skilled at, you're learned at, and you bring your individualized touch in a way that's not automated. That isn't about efficiency. We'll get the efficiency from the digital technology, but the inefficiency, the beauty, the the ideas, the intelligence, that's going to be the the human part. A, a close cousin, of course, of local beer is local coffee and, and espresso, right? And I, I'm always kind of touched by the passion and pride and obsession of baristas. You know, it's the sort of thing that is very easily mechanized, right? I mean, I'm sure that at some point we'll have a perfect espresso shot produced by a machine. But there's something so deeply human about first the ritual of performing this, right? Because we are part of what we've done for millions of years as monkeys is perform tasks in sequence. There's something very kind of gratifying about that ritual. And then second, it's it's the act of care of, of creating things for someone else one-to-one and making the little heart or the leaf in the foam on top of the espresso shot, right? <laughs> it, 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 there's something that's just deeply touching to me about, about that. And, and it does feel like that is something that we have, have the potential to see more of, not less of in, in our future. 
Well, I, I love that you say that. So uh, uh, let me tell you about where I live. I live in downtown Toronto in a hipstery kind of urban neighborhood that's not dissimilar to Brownstone, Brooklyn, or the Mission in San Francisco, or mm-hmm. any other place mm-hmm. of uh, overwhelming craft beer choice. There are more than a dozen independent coffee shops within a half mile radius around my house. The one I go to is called the Tampered Press. Um, it's a mother daughter, you know, mom, uh, Elizabeth bakes the croissants and all the baked goods. Caitlin, her daughter kind of runs the business. She has wonderful staff there. You know, they hang local art and, and they, and they, and they make good coffee. And it's, you know, that specific type of coffee and a very loyal clientele. You know, a year ago, a, company of, I forget these, these guys made their money in some sort of tech thing, or maybe it was like the weed business. Um, they opened up a robot coffee vending machine. So you're literally talking about your perfect shot. They, they found some company out of Silicon Valley that like claimed to be a robot that makes the perfect shop. And this thing's like a, like a Toyota assembly line robot, like a little arm, right? Mm. And you like tap it in on a touchscreen on the street and hold your credit card up to it. And then like, you can watch through the window as it like grinds the beans and auto tamps it and whatever. And like out through the arm comes this thing. Okay. I've never seen anyone buy a coffee there, but if you go to the tampered press at any time of the day from seven, when they open till seven, when they close, there will be people there. There will be a line out the door sometimes. If not, there's like 10 people inside hanging on their laptops, doing their work, reading the newspaper, writing in their journals. And then people just going, ordering coffee, sitting outside, you know, across the street from the park, getting sun. And you can replicate that across the 200, 300 independent coffee shops just in the sort of downtown core of Toronto. And so when we think about the future of something, we tend to like extrapolate out, oh, one day there's going to be a machine and the machine will make the perfect coffee and boom, that'll be the end of these things. And it's like, no, because the machine's going to make the same coffee. And you may want a coffee that tastes differently from what that machine makes. And not only that, but you don't go to a coffee shop just for the coffee. You go because it's a place that makes you feel a little more human. Because you have the conversation with Caitlin and you ask how she's doing and you smell the baked goods that her mom's making. You say hi and you bump into your neighbors. It gives you that sense of place. It's that very human thing, right? The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Jonathan Fields. Tune into my podcast for conversations about the sweet spot between work, meaning, and joy. And also listen to other people's questions about how to get the most out of that thing we call work. Check out Spark wherever you enjoy podcasts. Let's talk about school. You write, I pray that children and students only ever learn from a screen in the most tightly restricted circumstances, that the false promise of virtual school takes its rightful place in the garbage pile of history's terrible ideas. It sounds like your assessment is that the, our, our virtual school experiment was a colossal failure. 
I mean, if you could find me someone who believes otherwise, I would love to debate them. Virtual school or remote school is not a new idea. When Thomas Edison was working with his inventions of you know, recorded sound and, and moving pictures, he predicted that in the future, we would no longer need schools because the best ideas and lectures and information would be transferred through these new technologies and children could learn anywhere and anyone could learn anywhere. And we would sort of free up from these tired structures that haven't changed since the time of Socrates of, you know, someone standing in front of a group of people and teaching them information, right? Um, and this was, you know, the promise of encyclopedias. And it was, you know, with digital, it became the promise of CD-ROMs in Carta. This is the future of education. Mm, of yeah, of yeah. one laptop per child, right? A Nicholas Negroponte. We're gonna, we're gonna parachute these laptops into Africa, like just peak colonialism. And then you had this sort of MOOC movement of Sebastian Thurn and like everyone's gonna be able to go online and watch the best video lectures from Harvard and Stanford. And this is going to transform universities. Campuses are going to be the world and everyone can learn. It's this democratized thing. This was all happening before the pandemic. And all of these things had failed before the pandemic. One laptop per child was a total disaster. The MOOC movement, as soon as they moved it out to actual universities and they're like, okay, this is a mandatory course at the University of Southern California, Santa Cruz. It had a 10% completion rate. 10% of students, only 10%. Watched all the lectures and did all the work. Right? Could you imagine a university course where only ten percent of people completed it? How quickly would that professor be fired? How quickly would that head of the department be like <laughs> investigated? How quickly would that funding be pulled from that? So, any time anyone had tried to replace the school environment with some sort of remote learning option. It had failed. And the person I cite most uh, when I talk about this, and, and, and a gentleman who I've interviewed for two books, his name is Larry Cuban. And, and Larry Cuban uh, is a professor of, of the history of education and history of education and technology at Stanford. And begins you know, looking at this in the 1980s when he was a proponent of, of technology and education, the potential of it. But as he saw its implementation failure time and again, depending on the different technologies that were available at the time, he started seeing that there was this inherent philosophical misstep that was happening. And it's education is not information. Education is a relationship. It's a human relationship between a teacher or a professor and their students, between the students and their classmates and their colleagues, and between all of them and the community that they're in, whether it's a public school in its neighborhood or a university like Harvard and its surrounding sort of world and campus and alumni network and so forth. And he said that relationship is the thing that allows people to care about what they're learning. It allows them to take the information, the facts and figures that are there ostensibly for education and build them into something greater, build them into knowledge and build them into you know what John Dewey wrote about, which was this deeper sense of like, who I am as an individual within a society, whether that's a democracy or a place like China, you know, what is my role in that? What are the rules and structures of the society and the norms of it that wrap itself around that person and make them something greater than just the facts they learn? You know, the one thing I would push back on though is, I, I, is that I would say that I think that the um, that we're just in the earliest stages of learning how to harness digital technology to support education. And so I think that like what I see when I look at my kids is they, you know, we, we've been testing a parenting strategy uh, that we refer to as benign neglect, and uh, which involves allowing them to spend a lot of time uh, with iPads and 
and, and laptops. And, you know, I, I, I'm embarrassed to admit that they spend a decent amount of time on YouTube. Our 12-year-old has learned an astonishing amount about science from watching YouTube videos in succession. He just goes down these sort of science rabbit holes. And he says, Dad, you know, yeah, we have science textbooks, but video as a medium is much better at communicating scientific principles, which involve often images and graphs and charts. He, he also uses Duolingo. We went to Amsterdam. He was so intoxicated by, so, so smitten with Amsterdam that he's, that he's spent more than a year now learning Dutch just because it, it interested him through du, Duolingo. And I'd say he's learned more in a year using Duolingo than he has in three years of, of Spanish classes in school. So I, I, I agree with the fundamental thesis that, of course, School is is a, it's a community experience, and it's about learning how to how to think together. But I think what we did during the pandemic is test a very early, highly imperfect, rudimentary approach to to learning using digital technologies. And I think when we look at the colossal cost, this is an argument that Scott Galloway made on this show. If we look at the colossal cost of of college in the U.S the enormous debt that students are burdened with, that it's likely that we'll see some forms of hybrid educational opportunities that could be less expensive and could lean on the, the kind of interactive, better versions of, of digital platforms for some portion of the learning and in person when it matters. What do you think about that? I mean, would you tell me a circumstance where you would send your children? How many children do you have? Three. Three children. Wow. Good for you. Um, you would send your three children or one of your three children to virtual university. I think it's more that the ability to learn in a supplementary fashion, languages, skills, coding, whatever it is, just dramatically. I, I think the necessity of graduating from college in the first place is much lower today than it was some decades ago. Um, so I think if I if one of my children said, hey, I'm, I want to go explore the world, get some interesting jobs, teach myself uh, in all these other ways, I, I think that's much more viable today than it would have been. In some way, yeah. But again, it's that, you know, it's still that experience, right? It's like, hey, I've watched a bunch of YouTube videos on this stuff. You know, your son's watching YouTube videos. My daughter watches YouTube videos. She's doing a science experiment on non-Newtonian fluids, which I didn't learn about. She looked it all up online. She saw how to build yeah. Black, this non-Newtonian. It just basically requires me to go out and buy eight boxes of cornstarch, um, <laughs> which I got to put on my list for today. Um, that's great. But what's the value of that? The value is not her learning how to mix cornstarch and water in the right amount. The value is not only the inquiry and learning about the scientific method, but the presentation she has to give to her class. So, you know, back in the day, there are many people who didn't have to go to school and they could learn on their own. The value though of that thing isn't lessened by the ability to get that information online. The value of school is elevated in this world because what is school teaching you? It's teaching you the critical thinking. It's teaching you how to be in groups. It's teaching you how to build a human and be a human in society. And as much as my kids or your kids can learn individual skills or individual things, that doesn't add up to the greater thing that school teaches them, right? Think about a place like Afghanistan, right? Where girls can't go to school anymore, or if they can, they're severely restricted. 
they fought for the rights of it. They had it for the 20 years of the, you know, the, the, the United States occupation there and presence. And, and they lost it when the Taliban took over. Can we go tell those girls in Afghanistan, hey, but who, you know, don't worry about it because you can learn from home. It's all good. It's all good. School is not the fact that they can just learn these things from a technology, even if we can give every one of them a laptop and it doesn't solve the thing. It's like, no, it's it's forming bonds, it's forming friendships, it's having a voice in that world. And again, it's it's getting back to that notion of like our kids can go on YouTube and they do, and they learn they can absorb information. Your son can can learn to speak Dutch online. Awesome. That's great. But until he actually goes to Amsterdam and Rotterdam and speaks Dutch, what does it matter? Right? It's this abstract idea. It's great for his brain, but it's, you know, what do you learn in a language class? You learn how to converse with someone. You're not just learning vocabulary. That's where the the true learning happens, not no. just the words. Yeah, I, I would make the case that school is in the process of getting better because we've isolated the things about school that are most valuable, much in the same way that we were talking about how I think workplaces are becoming better places, right? Because yeah. we're isolating what makes them valuable. So when I was in sixth grade, you know, we had a, you know, a dictation where the teacher would literally, you know, read from some essay. We would write it the whole thing down, which was some old English, you know, boarding school type thing. It was it was much more rote memory, much more individual learning than my children are experiencing today. Today, there's much more collaborative, you know, figuring, you know, dividing into groups of three to five to figure things out in in, in science classes, um, and 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 less rote memory. They're using calculators, uh, and and soon I think GPT three and you know is like likely going to further change the way that education happens. So it, it, it's, I, I, I see it as a dialogue that there will be, there already is a kind of hybrid way in which, in which people are learning. And it's causing us to make the places we get together face-to-face -to, -face to be more focused on what we do best face-to-face, -face, you know? Yeah. I had a great conversation about education with Andreas Schleicher, who until recently was the head of the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECDs, the head of education. So it's really like, as a global institution, probably the the one that that is is the most prominent and influential in terms of monitoring and assessing the state of global education. It, it administers the PISA test, which basically grades how countries' public school systems do. And he said, you know, if you look at the best countries in the world for education that consistently rank very high, Finland's kind of at the top, right? He said, you know, the Finnish education system has more in common with kindergarten than university. You know, when you mm -hmm. think about kindergarten, it's all about this notion of open inquiry. You don't have to sit and do this specific thing and fulfill this test. It's, you know, we're going to read a story now, not everyone has to come. Here's a bunch of toys. Here's a bunch of things. We're going to learn about this thing, but you can kind of do it in your own way. And that is so much more analogous to the way that actually life works, right? Um, that's That's how work is. That's, you know, when you think about the adult world, it's like, Here's a bunch of things. Here's some information. Here's some tasks you got to do. Here's some stuff. You got to figure out how it's going to work. You need open inquiry. You need curiosity. You have to question things. But you know what happens is the the especially the American system of education has become much more in line with sort of that digital expectations of a binary reality. Right? What's the American education system all about? Standardized tests. That is the driving notion that we can quantify. You know the the performance. 
and the 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 learning that happens and that is antithetical to the way that people actually need to learn and what education is about but you know again it's the the technology of well we need a test that's going to be able to be scored by a bunch of computers uh with punch cards or later on you know some other thing how can we do it okay it's going to be multiple choice it's going to be this and therefore it's going to be this way and like that's that system teaches people to think like that which is totally different from the way they do it in Finland, where there are no standardized tests. I love, David, your, your section on, on cities. You know, we think of cities as technologically sophisticated places, right? The, the many tech companies are located in cities. They're full of very tech-oriented young people. But cities themselves are really chaos machines that are inherently analog, right? You make this case, which, which I love. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting because I, it, you know, most of the things in the book that I that I wrote about were these observations I had about the parts of my life that were moved online because of the pandemic mm -hmm. and yeah. the contrast I saw. And cities seemed a little less obvious, but there was a couple reasons why I I sort of wanted to tackle it this way. One is that at the time here in Toronto, where I live, uh, there was this fierce debate. Because there was this project that was called Sidewalk Toronto. And this was the biggest smart city project by what was called Sidewalk Labs, which was, or is, I guess, a division of Alphabet or Google um, that had a lot of Bloomberg administration people. And it was all about sort of the implementation of smart city stuff. And Toronto and all the sort of levels of Canadian government had kind of given Google this huge chunk of downtown waterfront industrial real estate. I, I think at one time it, it was valued as like one of the most valuable chunks of urban real estate in North America at the time. And Google is saying, we are going to promise to build you the city of the future, right? We're going to have automated cars and the sidewalks are going to have sensors in them. And there's going to be sensors everywhere. So when the garbage is full, a robot's going to pull up and a pneumatic Things going to suck the garbage out. All this sort of layers of technology. It's going to be supported by advertising that's targeted to people, so on and so forth. So this has been a couple of years, you know, since they cut the ribbon with all the levels of political government there, and it was it was already getting tremendous opposition. You know, well, hold on, who owns this data? What about all this privacy? Our garbage bins are like overflowing in the rest of the city. Why are we spending going to be spending millions of dollars on these pneumatic things? Like. You know, once they got down to it and they looked at the contracts, people were like, whoa. So it was already sort of on its its tenuous legs. And 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 very quickly, once the pandemic happens, Sidewalk just like, all right, we're out. Like clearly this is not happening. They left town with their tail between their legs. And then what happened in the future of this city that's like any other cities, struggling with growth, with inequality, with homelessness, with substance abuse, with funding and tax bases and real estate prices and all these, you know, real city problems. The city dramatically changed during COVID, and many of those changes were positive. And what were those yeah. changes? They were all thoroughly analog, right? Hey, we can just transform parking spaces into restaurant patios because people can't go inside. Okay, let's do it. We had been fighting for bike lanes in this city that have been gradually growing mile by mile every year. All of a sudden, boom, let's shut down the biggest avenue that's the equivalent of the West Side Highway on every weekend. And me and my kids were all of a sudden biking on like a six lane street that was usually just filled with traffic and everyone else was and people rollerblading and roller skating. And it was amazing. We instantly saw this transformation that 
got down to this core question of what is a city and what does its future mean and what do we what do we want from it right we have again these needs as humans and the city is exists as this most human place and i think that tension of what a city is and what it needs and what we think it needs or what we predict the future is speaks to this sort of bigger question right and if you look at you know the city of the future I mean, who's pitching the city of the future? It's, you know, our favorite blood-soaked despot in Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Salman, building his uh, Neom, the city of the future in the desert. Is that a city that anyone actually wants to live in? No. You want to live in New York. You want to live in Sao Paulo. You want to live in Montreal. You want to live in Paris, right? Because what is it about that makes a city? Is it the Wi-Fi service? Is it how it delivers new technology to you? No, it's that thing that makes a city great. It's it's energy, it's humanness, it's vibe. Now, technology can help that. It can make that more accessible like e-bikes and bike sharing programs, right? Um, or yes. better subway service or like sewage treatment systems that are advanced. But when when that technology, again, seeks to replace that part of the city or seeks to be the solution to its problems, you're eating into what actually makes that thing what it is. And a theme that runs through your book is this impact of the pandemic. And it was in New York, and, and, and it sounds like Toronto as well, that this, just this realization that you can trade one parked car for 15 people clinking rosé glasses, you know, was just a revelation and nobody wants to go back. And it, it, it's fascinating to me, all the silver linings that we've extracted from obviously this, this, this horrible pandemic and all kinds of losses and pain and suffering, but all these sort of surprising silver linings of, of, of people realizing there, there are better ways to live. But only if they learn from it. Well, only yes, if they- that's right. This is the problem, right? Is like, okay, that was over. That was awful. Whew, back to reality now. Um, and yeah, the future is still going to be digital because that's what they're selling me, right? Like Zuckerberg's saying- I'm going to, you know, wear wear my uh, VR goggles and this is the future. So that's where we're going. And I think if we don't pause now and say, hold on, we went through this thing. We really have to learn from this, right? And we don't just have to learn in terms of pandemic preparedness and how to roll out a vaccine campaign. We need to learn, look critically at what happened to our lives when we made everything digital and use that to frame the way we think about the future when someone's bringing us a new technology and saying, this is where the world's going to go. Would you like to be the most interesting person at your next cocktail party? Want to be the person who always has a great answer to the question, read any good books lately? Want to get smarter without cutting into your precious Netflix binge time? Well, allow me to introduce you to the next big idea app. Our curators, Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Kane, and Daniel Pink, have handpicked hundreds of the best new books, and we've worked directly with the authors of those books to create 12-minute audio summaries. Unlike other book summary apps, these aren't written by side-hustling college students. They're written and read by the authors themselves. And that's not all you'll find once you download the app. We also have masterclasses from authors like Shankar Vedantam and Lisa Feldman Barrett, ad-free versions of this podcast, and exclusive author interviews you can't find anywhere else. There is no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app today by going to your app store and searching for Next Big Idea.
so one last topic, David, is is um, we had another David, David Chalmers, the philosopher on the show, to talk about his book, Reality Plus. And his thesis, which is, I think, controversial, contrarian, is that we will inevitably spend a chunk of our lives in the future in virtual reality. And it is likely to be amazing and possibly better than our current experience of reality. Uh, and he, he's not saying we're going to live our entire lives in, in, in virtual worlds, but he's saying we'll spend uh, you know, some subset of our lives in virtual worlds. And I think he might argue that the reason that interacting with humans online is so fundamentally unsatisfying, the reason we all were just sort of disgusted by our, our virtual cocktail Zooms during the pandemic was at core that the bandwidth of those experiences was too low, <laughs> right? That there, there may be a, some kind of future iteration of these technologies where you actually do come to experience sentience and connection with other humans in a way that's highly compelling. What do you think of that? Okay. Short answer, I don't think so. Long answer, here's the thing. I was listening to your conversation with David and you guys were talking about mini golf mm, yeah. and playing mini golf in a virtual reality simulation in, I don't know, was it meta or? I think so. Yeah. The, yeah. And how great it was that it felt like you were like whacking a club and it looked great. Now, I hate golf, but I love mini golf. And I mean, uh, love. Me too. like when I get, <laughs> when I, when I get hired to go to give a talk at a conference in Orlando, you know, I'll go do a Disney park, but like every night after dinner, I will go to a mini golf course because I have such fond memories of mini golf in Orlando as a kid. And, you know, my favorite one is a place called Gator Golf, which is the most Florida place you can imagine. It is a mini golf course in Orlando that is surrounded by various alligator tanks with like, I don't know, 50, 60 alligators that you're like, you know, the thing goes up and if you miss it, it goes in with the alligators and you know, it's Florida. It's a, it's a strip mall on a strip with a bunch of alligators and mini golf. Like it's everything you can ask for. They may even be playing Jimmy Buffett in the background. Now, Mark Zuckerberg can hire his best programmers, go to Gator Golf, film every interaction, study it and deliver that to me on my headset. Or maybe one day through some neural link device that Elon's propped into my brain while he's done you know, coddling Nazis or whatever the hell he does. And maybe it will look like Gator Golf and it will sound like Gator Golf, but it won't be Gator Golf. I won't feel the sun of the Florida afternoon or the warm, humid stench of Orlando on my skin or beating down on my back. I won't hear the conversations of the people behind me or the the buffet in the side or the smell of tar, the the splash of the hiss of that alligator. I won't feel the fear that even knowing it's encased by some sort of glass, that there's an alligator that's right next to me or the, the satisfying tink as my crappy putter hits that crappy ball and it goes in and lands in that cup and makes that little sound, that real sound that I feel with my body. It won't be the same. And even if it is, at the end of the day, if I have that virtual reality gator golf experience, what will it give me? It will give me the desire to fly to Orlando and go to the real thing because reality is still where the action is. 
there's two certainties that I see in the future, and I'm not much one for future predictions, but here they are. One, new technologies are going to keep coming about, providing us with new opportunities to do amazing, wonderful, and horrible things, AI, robotics, VR, whatever, whatever else is coming out that we don't even know about. And these are going to challenge us and give us opportunities to do things in every sort of aspect of our life, work, school, entertainment, culture, cities, everything, right? Your family, your friends, whatever you do. And the other truth is that we are still going to be human. We're still flesh and blood creatures. We are still animals and we still have needs, physical needs, emotional needs, spiritual needs, mental needs. And as long as we are human and we remain animals, then the technology is only going to work for us and only going to grow if it meets our needs. If it seeks to replace those needs with a simulation of hitting a golf ball, then it's going to have its limitations because we we don't go to gator golf because of the swing. We go for that experience, right? And this is what we learned during the past couple of years. If the technology helped us, if it met our needs, if it made things better and made things more efficient, if it made our lives an improvement in being a human, then we're all in for it. We're great. But when it doesn't, we're not interested. It doesn't, we we brush it off. There, that's that backlash. You know, the Mark Zuckerberg, what was it, a year and a bit ago, right? He came out and said, We're changing our name to Meta. We're all in for the metaverse. The future is virtual reality in the metaverse. And all these companies, people are like, Yeah, yeah, we're all in too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's what, 200,000 people who are using that thing? It's a insignificant number based on the reach and the platform and the potential. Because people are saying, I tried it. Reality is still better. Well, I definitely need to go to Gator Golf after this conversation. I'm, uh, I'm also a big, still a big mini golf. Uh, for, I'm, I'm going to look it up. I also now know that I, I've been reminded that I need to do a multi-day canoe trip. I was inspired by the section in your book about your canoeing with friends. And, and I'd like to try to embrace a digital Sabbath one day with no tech interaction for the family. I think it's a brilliant idea. And I'm grateful, David, for your book, The Future is Analog, How to Create a More Human World. Thank you for being with us today. Rufus, it's been such a pleasure. It only would have been better if we were in person. But um, thank you to digital technology for bringing us together in this way. Indeed. Next time. And that's our show. Thank you to David Sachs. If you'd like to hear a few more ideas from The Future is Analog, I encourage you to download the Next Big Idea app and check out David's Book Bite. It's an audio course where David shares the five key insights from the book in just 17 minutes. To hear it, all you have to do is go to your app store and download the Next Big Idea app. If you enjoyed this episode, I think you might like the conversation I had earlier this year with Jane McGonigal. That episode is called Imaginable, How Anyone Can Predict the Future, Yes, Even You. If you like this show and have 30 seconds to spare, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave us a five-star rating and a review if you think we've earned it. It may not seem like much, but it's actually one of the best ways to help us get the word out about this podcast. What do you think? Will the future really be analog? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Follow me on LinkedIn, subscribe to the Next Big Idea newsletter, and jump into the comments. Follow me, Rufus Griscom, on LinkedIn. 
Today's episode was written and produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kovnat, sound designed by Mike Toda. We wish we could work face-to-face with the team at LinkedIn. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.